above the noise and run to you I have no choice I'm choosing to trust in love over logic following the sound of your voice yes I am hearing you above the tearing your touch on my skin Hey everybody, this is Richard Sachs, this is Lost Arts Radio. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we have a guest on tonight that I've wanted to have on for a long time. And that is uh, the political director for Organic Consumers Association, Alexis Baden-Meyer. And she's doing great work in trying to get the Organic Standards Board of the U.S. government to protect what is labeled as organic as being truly organic and not polluted with poison and GMOs and gene-altering technology and nanoparticles and stuff like that. We have a lot to talk about. And uh, Organic Consumers Association has been interested in um, exposing what really happened with the COVID pandemic and the vaccines for that. And Ronnie Cummins wrote a book with Joe Mercola, that was really good called, I think, The Truth About COVID-19, something like that. <clears throat> and they've got a site, uh, organicconsumers.org, definitely worth keeping up with. And you can sign up there to be a subscriber to get their newsletter and emails, which I did, and they're very good. Um, everybody's in the process of learning the depth of this incredible dystopian intentional nightmare that's being rolled out against humanity and against all life on the planet. So I was going to do an official start to this video and then kind of forgot and got into a conversation with Alexis and decided, oh, let's just record this private part first and share everything with you guys. So it's going to start in a minute. I hope you enjoy it and um, make use of the knowledge. He's a really great educator person doing good work and needs to be supported, So, in my opinion. So, hope you like the show, and uh, I'll talk to you at the end. Hi, Alexis. How are you doing? Good, Richard. So nice to see you. Yeah, same here. It's been a few years. Yeah. You've been keeping up with things. I I just was taking a look at your website. Uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing to see what's going on in the world. I think it's getting crazy enough, so more people are getting open to it. I think so. What'd you say? I couldn't hear you. I agree. Yeah, that's the only advantage I can think right at the moment of things getting more dystopian is that, you know, people have a chance to get a grasp of what's going on Mm -hmm. and realize that they can have an impact on it. Yeah. It's the same reality. Stay real simple. You know, just be in harmony with nature Mm -hmm. and where you came from and who you are. But it gets so complex with the uh, what they call science now, you know, convincing yeah. everybody that common sense is out of date. Right. 
Anyway, I got to read a little bit about what you're doing too, and it sounds great. So we've had Henry on the show. Oh, great. Times, and uh, communicated with Stephanie. And a lot, a lot of us are, you know, trying to get back to normal, if, however that can be done. Yep. I don't know if, if I told you before, I was a strong advocate of organic stuff in the 1960s. When I was a university student with Alan Chadwick, you know who that is, right? I don't. No, he, he was a, a um, student of Rudolf Steiner. Oh. And uh, interesting character from the UK. And he came over and uh, was teaching at the university where I was a student in the 60s. We had, I, was, I was at the University of California. This was in 67. And we had two worlds going on at once. There was Alan Chadwick's garden where, you know, he came over. He had just ditched his family in the UK, the really aristocratic, rich, well-off family. Hmm. And he was a uh, commander on a warship in the World War II and got disenchanted with all the destruction that he was part of and came over and just decided to do, be an organic gardener long before organic was defined by government or mm-hmm. any other authorities like that. You know, J.I. Rodale was involved in, during the late World War II era and with Organic Gardening Magazine that was handed off to Robert Rodale. And then I think somehow there was a connection with Ronnie, who's also been on the show. But anyway, Alan came over and, and they gave him a hillside covered with rocks and poison oak and figured he couldn't do too much damage there because he didn't even have a PhD or anything, you know, but they let him stay and um, he created another universe. And people used to come from all over the world to see it. And that was organic. And we just gave away flowers and vegetables and stuff to the people who came from all over the world. And they stopped, by the way, to see the university as a side note. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so it was interesting. And then eventually the government got involved. And I'll just say this, you know, this is a private conversation that you guys are hearing. But... um, We'll let you in on the idea that we wanted to have a show. I wanted to have a show with one of our heroes, which is Alexis Baden Meyer, the uh, political director and one of the lead attorneys or the lead attorney for Organic Consumers Association. And OCA has done a lot of fantastic work over many years and is now involved with trying to get the National Organic Program and the National Organic Standards Board to be true to their real mission. And we want to talk about that based on the idea that a lot of people are asking about vaccines and food now. And yeah. it's an actual serious issue. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm really grateful that you took a little time to be here, Alexis. And I want to go back with the general theme of inviting everybody into the conversation, not just the people familiar with organic. I want to, you know, people who tune in just from the beginning say, organic, isn't that just a way to charge more for your food and it's a big scam, you know, like vitamins and stuff like that. Or is there something to it? What is organic? And, you know, as I was just saying, organic in the sense that we mean it existed long before government was involved. So what does it actually mean and what does government mean? And is there a difference? Well, um, organic is self-explanatory <laughs> to to consumers of organic to okay. growers of organic 
Um, but it does have a government definition and it might, the government definition might not live up to our ideals for what organic is or could be. Um, it's not likely to live up to the beauty of the farm that you visit where you buy your food. Right. Um, and it certainly, you know, what you can buy direct from a farmer, especially if you can visit and get to know that farmer and see how they treat the animals, how they fertilize the land, um, how they keep growing roots in the soil year round, even in harsh climates. Um, you know, these, these things are regenerative organic. We've had to add real organic, regenerative organic, resilient organic. We've had to, to add words to the word organic so that it fills out everything we expect it to be because USDA organic is somewhat narrow. The government mainly defines organic by what it is not. So back in hmm. the Bill Clinton administration, there was a man named Islam Siddiqui who worked for Bill Clinton as a government appointee and then later worked for crop life for Monsanto and Bayer and DuPont and Dow and all the chemical companies, he ended up being the lead representative of their trade association, CropLife. But back in the Clinton administration, this man suggested that there should be sewage sludge allowed in organic, Mm -hmm. that irradiation should be allowed in organic, and lots of other things that we luckily have been able to keep out of organic. That was the campaign that launched the Organic Consumers Association, keeping organic standards to the letter of the law, the law that Congress passed, the Organic Foods Production Act. Right. So So, if it's just a list of what can't be in there, that could potentially be misleading, right? Because they can have products that say, no aluminum, and they're full (laughs) of arsenic or something like that. Yeah, well, I don't think things are that bad in organic. Our main quarrels have been over whether synthetic ingredients can make up a small percentage of organic foods. Uh, you may remember the lawsuit that was l- launched by a blueberry farmer, Arthur Harvey. Right. And he said, hey, wait a second. The National Organic Program is making a list, a legal list, a regulatory list of synthetic ingredients allowed in organic. But he said, when I read the Organic Foods Production Act, I don't see this allowance for synthetics and organic and the regulatory agencies at the USDA defining organic in the rules had said, well, we're going to allow a few synthetic ingredients because we can't make processed foods without them, but they can't be more than 5% of a product that is labeled USDA organic. And they can't be more than 30% of a product that is labeled made with organic ingredients. So, so Arthur Harvey won that lawsuit, <laughs> which was amazing because he did that lawsuit pro se without an attorney. He wow. just went for it. He said, look, I read the law. Here's my filing. The USDA is breaking the law that Congress wrote and he won. And the wow. corporations in charge of the organic trade association, um, cor- corporations like Kraft, which was tied up with Phyllis, Philip Morris, um, you know, the worst corporations in the world that you know, we're killing us with cigarettes and creating toxic foods. These corporations took over organic through the Organic Trade Association, and they hired a high-powered lobbyist who was the wife of a senator or congressman. I don't remember the woman's name, 
but she was like a, a real true insider. And she came up with a brilliant scam to, to use an appropriations bill at the 11th hour when the bill went to the final conference committee, right before it was going to go back to both ha- houses for a rubber stamp vote, you know, way after anything would have been debated. Yeah. And she snuck in a provision that changed the Organic Food Production Act to legitimize this allowance for synthetic and non-organic ingredients and organic. So right. that's been one big fight. And the Cornucopia Institute and Beyond Pesticides and Organic Consumers Association, all the organizations that diligently attended organic standards boards meetings, trying to, you know, to fix these things, our work became having to, to oppose every little synthetic ingredient that industry wanted to put into organic. And unfortunately, we have largely been unsuccessful. It, the hardest part is getting a synthetic ingredient out of organic once it's inorganic. Right. And we did have an advantage on that because it was supposed to be a two-thirds vote of the 15-member organic standards board. And then that was switched so that they could keep something inorganic as long as they didn't have two-thirds of people who wanted to take it out. So, wow. so it's been an ongoing issue. It's had some, some serious repercussions. It seems like a, you know, a minor thing. Um, but it's had serious repercussions because there are some ingredients that are pretty essential to maintaining poor farming methods or maintaining factory farm methods in organic. One of those ingredients is synthetic methionine. It's an amino acid that is essential to the healthy functioning of the body of a poultry animal. So if, if, if you don't have birds outside grazing, eating uh, leaves and shoots, digging in the dirt for bugs and worms, um, then the poultry suffers. I mean, honestly, poultry are omnivores. They're not really vegetarians. You see a lot of marketing around vegetarian feed as if that's somehow a good thing. I guess it's a good thing to somebody who's vegetarian, but 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 poultry is supposed to eat even small rodents. You know, they they can they're predators right, and right. they should have a varied diet. And if they don't are if they aren't outside having a varied diet, then you need to give them a synthetic amino acid called methionine. And if you do give them this, then they will be healthy mm. under the worst conditions indoors without right. sunlight and without complete nutrition. So some of these minor ingredients have had big impacts. And and that one, I would say, had the biggest impact, making it possible for factory farm organic to exist. And the other part of that wow. Wow. was that the, the Organic Standards Board and the National Organic Program at the USDA did not enforce the rule that required poultry to be able to go outside. All animals are supposed to have access to the outdoors and organic. Right, right, right. So they just ignore that and don't do it, is what you're saying, right? Yeah. Um, Cornucopia Institute has done fantastic work. Um, Mark Castell started a new organization called Organic Eye, and he was the one at Cornucopia running these campaigns to expose factory farmed organic. They they hired planes to fly them over organic operations, mm-hmm. and they created amazing layout images of gigantic farms where all you see is 
gigantic windowless building after gigantic windowless building with well-manicured grass or gravel mm-hmm. around it and no evidence whatsoever that the that the poultry was getting outside. And this is how the majority of eggs are produced. But if you're interested in in seeing the range of organic, because the, the sad thing is the worst thing about organic standards not being enforced mm-hmm. is that there are plenty of small-scale independently operated family organic farms. And these people are doing everything right. And, and they have to compete against factory farm scale organic. Right. Who can afford to do things at scale at less cost. Per That's year, right. Cutting per corners, year. disregarding right. the law and being too big to fail. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. This, I mean, this is bringing up a, a problem in, in general where things are declared illegal and nobody does anything. Yep. Yep. We're having that problem right now with dicamba. It's, it's farmer against farmer when it comes to Monsanto's now bears herbicide dicamba. Mm-hmm. Bear and Monsanto came up with a roundup or sorry, not roundup ready, dicamba ready, a genetically modified crop that allows unlimited amounts of dicamba to be sprayed on soybeans and cotton. And this formulation of dicamba, which is a very, very toxic herbicide, causes it to spray and drift all over everything. And so if you're growing tomatoes near a cornfield or a soybean field or or cotton, one of these dicamba-ready crops, Mm -hmm. your crop will will get destroyed. And this has been a, a problem for many years, and it's conventional farmers suing conventional farmers, trying mm-hmm. to get the EPA and the USDA involved. And the EPA has been told numerous times in lawsuits spearheaded by the Center for Food Safety that mm-hmm. what they are doing is illegal, that dicamba, the approval was illegal, and its continued use is illegal, and the headlines continue to come out that that EPA is flaunting the law. Wow. Wow. They know that they won't get in trouble. So there's a well, problem. Well, the stops with them. There's no higher authority. I mean, I guess it would be Congress. Congress has oversight over the agencies. But could a, Congress could a can federal judge stop them? Bills. Well, the federal judge can issue the order. That's what's oh, happening. The but they can't, judge, enforce, they can't enforce it, right? Yeah, I mean, the the enforcement mechanisms are in the federal government. So you would need the Department of Justice going after the EPA. I mean, it's just not happening. Right. So it's not Congress so much because Congress has the same problem. They'll come up and expose something and nothing happens. Yep. It's a DOJ. Yeah, you need to have somebody at the federal government who, who believes in their mission of enforcing federal law. And unfortunately, we're seeing fewer and fewer people actually doing their jobs at the federal level because they're all looking for that golden ticket out of the federal government into a lobbying position or some Mm -hmm. other cushy post with industry. Yeah. And some judges all over the country are being paid massive amounts to get into office and do what they're told. Yeah. I do believe that federal judges are still appointed. So, so that shouldn't be the issue, but you know, they're appointed by, the president. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, at the federal level, our, our government is just completely corrupt. So it's a, it's a really general issue with the people feeling like they're pretty much helpless to do anything. And even when they start realizing what's going on. 
Well, we do have the power though. You know, what we do creates the world that we live in. And even though I I have become disillusioned with the opportunities for change at the federal level, Mm -hmm. I, I am hopeful that when people realize this, that no one has your back at the federal level and that you have to make good choices, then we start forming relationships with farmers at a local level and curing our food supply. So decentralization is a main theme of Remedy, right? Definitely. My favorite organization working on that is the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Mm, I didn't even know that one. Oh, it's so good. Um, Tom Lindsay started the organization, and they, they started out in Pennsylvania, and they were just good environmental attorneys helping local communities in the, the rural areas, helping mm-hmm. fight factory farms, helping them fight the spreading of sewage sludge onto farmland, um, just dealing with basic environmental issues where fracking could happen, big issue in Pennsylvania. Right. And they were amazingly successful in the fact that every time they went to court, they could tell the judge, look, this corporation failed to abide by this little piece of our zoning law or mm-hmm. this little piece of this local regulation. And they would win and win and win and win. And then finally, the corporation would tighten up all of their filings and dot their I's and cross their T's. And eventually the corporation would be in. And mm-hmm. and at that point, there wasn't really anything a local government could do. So they started teaching local communities through local legislators, particularly through what they called democracy schools. And they, they trained the local legislators in civil disobedience, saying like, okay, this corporation, <laughs> there aren't wow. any local laws that I can pass that, that can regulate this corporation. Well, I'm, I'm challenging that. And they would create basically local constitutions protecting the, the environment. And their local sovereignty in that area. Wow. Wow. And, and they started challenging bigger issues. They started asserting the locality's right to choose, not in the narrow sense of being able to regulate or zone, but having a say as to what was going to happen in their community, whether there would be fracking or not, whether there would be factory farms or not, whether there would be pollution or not. And, mm-hmm. They moved these cases through the court system, and some of them were very successful and went all the way up to the Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, establishing, beginning to establish local sovereignty over certain issues. Mm. And so now they've taken this, this campaign nationally, and they, they hope at some point to transform state constitutions to establish a, a local right to sovereignty. Um, there's a little bit of this happening at the federal level. There's a pesticide uh, regulatory bill called the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act. It's being promoted by Senator Booker. And in this bill, which is about how the EPA functions and how to close these loopholes that allow the EPA to continue to evade federal court orders, 
as they, you know, they'll say, okay, the federal court said we can't approve Dicamba. So we'll issue a, a conditional approval right, right. or we'll do an emergency approval. They keep, you know, going with these things. It seems to work with vaccines, right? Seriously. Yeah. All these loopholes right. under. Yeah, exactly. It's just like an emergency use authorization, right. which is basically an exemption from following normal safety regulations. Yeah, and so exactly. The EPA really paved the way <laughs> for this. Um, but they, but this, this bill, the PACTPA, the Protect America's Children from Toxic Pesticides Act actually doesn't just talk about federal law. It actually says we are going to make it federal law that local communities have a right to decide how pesticides are regulated where they live. And that is so inspiring to me. So that's, that's where I think that our, our big hope for changes is that we work at the local level to mm-hmm. create the world we want to see. And we have to do that through our choices where we buy our food right. that, you know, people have talked about right. eating your, your view. You know, if you want to have a beautiful landscape that's gorgeous farms, well, you have to buy food from farms that, that support the economy of your local agriculture or right. else, you know, here in Virginia, outside of DC, Amazon is coming in, buying up farmland and building data centers. And Virginia, mm-hmm. Northern Virginia has become the biggest concentration of Amazon data centers in the world since Amazon chose to build a headquarters here it, after Jeff Bezos uh, bought the Washington Post. You know, the local newspaper, he really had a a very devious strategy to come in and take over. But, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. So if you if you like the idea of having farms locally that you can visit, you know, in the fall to pick pumpkins or go cut a Christmas tree from or, you know, pick apples or berries like, you know, we we like this idea. But most of us consider it a special occasion. And we, we really mm-hmm. need to change our attitude about, you know, fighting for our, our own survival. Our own survival depends on, on having these local farms be successful. Right, right. Otherwise, there's only going to be one kind of food to eat and it's not going to be good. Yeah. So what, what was the name of the organization you said that was working on that uh, decentralization program? C-E-L-D-F. It sounds like we should be supporting them. Absolutely, 100%. It's my very favorite strategy, Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Can you send me contact for somebody yeah. who would like to be on, you know, on the air promoted? Absolutely, yeah. That would be great. Um, it really comes down to, it sounds like they're looking ahead to where some kind of uh, organization happens at the local level like that. And then the federal or state level says, no, you, we're going to force you to go against that. How, how are they looking at dealing with that when that happens? Yeah, so it could become an issue of one's constitutional rights. The federal constitution has a clause in it that says any power that is not enumerated here mm-hmm. and reserved for the federal government is reserved for the states. And and so, you know, we have a, a, a principle in our constitution for local control. And, and also it says reserved to the people is, is right. and people in that, in that amendment. So, or that I can't remember if it's part of the, yeah, I can't remember where in the constitution that is, but it's there. It's, 
And um, yeah, so we have the, the possibility of federal courts declaring local sovereignty to be a constitutional right. It should right. be. If you read, if you read the constitution, you would say, yep, I see that we have a constitutional right to local sovereignty, but the courts haven't observed it yet or recognized it in most instances. But CELDEF is really um, paving the way through legal action. And it starts with the, you know, first you need that locality to step up and say, we have sovereignty. Because right, if, if you right, don't use right. it, you lose it. You have to assert your rights. And so the the community itself has to be aware of the situation, what the remedies are, right? You can't have a community that is totally hypnotized and they're not going to do something like this. Yeah. So lo- local education of your own community seems to be pretty critical. Yeah, and it's a really fun thing to do. Um, you know, you can get to know your local legislators. Mm-hmm. You can attend public meetings. You know, it. you can testify. You can really get engaged at the local level. If even your state legislators, when you write them, even if you use a form letter through um, organicconsumers.org or another advocacy organization, you'll get an email back from your state legislator. Very unlike when you communicate with your members of Congress, right. tell them something, and then you'll get a form letter back that has nothing to do with the issue you raised. So there, we yeah. still have a strong possibility of, of making change at the local level, especially if we strategically work for the big change that needs to happen, which is this recognition of local sovereignty. Local self-sufficiency, too, to as, yes. as great an extent as possible, right? Yes. And you were bringing up the example of the weed killers, you know, like dicamba and atrazine is a big one and other ones yep. like that. Um, a lot of people have been educated to believe, especially if they're educated in college and, you know, ag schools right. and public health and things like that, that you can't produce food without deadly uh, toxins and especially weed killers. Everybody yeah. would starve. And, yeah. and if there were no GMOs, everybody would starve from that. Right. Too. So yeah. what, what, if people are honestly and sincerely thinking that, what's your response? Well, I think the best way to understand this is to visit an organic farm. Yes. I was recently down in Georgia, Bluffton, Georgia, mm-hmm. at White Oak Pastures. And this is a, a mm-hmm. tiny farm by American standards. It's The farm is about four miles long, and it's um, less than 3,500 acres. Mm-hmm. But, but on this farm, they are, are raising cattle poultry, eggs. I don't think they do milk, um, but they, they do pork. They do lamb. They do rabbits. They like, and, and all of this production is, is layered in a way so that it all completes a closed loop. So mm. they have a slaughterhouse on the farm. All of the slaughterhouse waste is composted that, you know, they have the capacity to grow their own feed. I don't think they are growing all of their own feed right now for their animals, but, you know, most of the animals are ruminants. Mm. That makes it easy because they take care of themselves as long as you have well-managed pastures and give the pastures time to rest. So, so this little farm that is run by one family and has 180 employees in a town of about 180 people, mm-hmm. uh, they produce enough food for us to eat their food three meals a day, 16,000 of us could eat White Oak Pastures food three meals a day 
<laughs> on 3,500 acres. I mean, less than that. It's, it's just kind of mind boggling the abundance of, of an effective system. This is a regenerative right. pasture based farm where all the animals are outside and not, not using Roundup. Oh, no, no. I, they, yeah, they, their animals, what they can do is figure out ways. I mean, a goat will eat just about anything. There's a, a niche for every ruminant animal and every animal, you know, like if you want, uh, if you need nitrogen someplace, send the chickens yeah. out, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So it all works. And, and when you have a functional system, there are very few, Yes, I mean, they, they are dealing with an invasive, I forget the name of the plant, is something incredibly thorny, but they mm. got all the farm managers together while I was there and they were discussing it. And it turned out that I forget which animal was willing to eat it, but <laughs> there was an animal that, that would eat it. And I'm guessing it was a goat. I can't remember. Right. But, you know, it's like there's a solution. If nature, you know, is under some stress and, and we don't have the systems that nature created anymore you know you have invasive species everywhere you have human beings doing our own food production it, it our world isn't going to go back to nature but we can imitate natural systems and and we can figure out how things fit together and right. make it work. i i'm so impressed by what white oak pastures does yeah and, it sounds wonderful and like we you know think of like i don't know how many acres there are in the united states but it, you know, people say, oh, if you did grass-fed beef, there just isn't enough land. That's not true. Well, they say unless you cut the population radically, there's not going to be enough food for people no matter what. So, Yeah, it's just not true. We're underestimating crazy. how productive, well-managed systems can be. They, yeah. They're, the, and, generally, the smaller ones are more productive per acre, too, if they're done absolutely. right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I realize, you know, I was so into... I was a vegetarian for 40 years from, uh-huh. no, 30 years from age 16 to age 46, uh-huh. 30 years as a vegetarian. And so I was mostly interested in animal agriculture as an environmental thing. You know, it's like, oh, wow, like you can really sequester a lot of carbon if you rotate cattle in, in regenerative grazing. That was interesting to me. And then I started attending farm conferences and listening to how farmers talked about their their farms and for them they you know they get really into you know new species of birds or or insects that they mm-hmm. find on their farm like new beetles yeah or all the different kinds of beetles it's, it's then, the opposite of the extinction program right? yeah yeah so it's so like there's just so much more to it and they they're also obviously interested in maximizing production and maximizing profit yeah. and and they can, they just figure out so many interesting ways to, to fit the pieces of their farms together. Uh, White Oak Pastures is using every tiny bit of the animal. I mentioned already that they use slaughterhouse waste for nutrient rich compost, but they also make leather products. They make, um, rawhide products for pet shoes. They, Oh, they, I, I'm wearing lip balm that is made from pork lard. You know, it's like uh-huh. there's so many things that the earth was just designed in such an abundant way. And human beings, I think miraculously, like for all of our faults, we, we really can figure out these systems and imitate nature and right. create infinite abundance. Yeah. 
is just being willing to stand up against what everybody seems to believe and centralized authority telling you what to do. And there's a, you know, that's something that I've dug into for many decades and I, I understand where they're going with it and it's not friendly and they're using what sound like very sophisticated reasoning processes like panic about climate change. Yep. I've been excommunicated by a lot of uh, liberal environmental groups for saying there's a lot of fraud in that, but there is. And some of them are starting to realize it now when proponents of terror of climate change move to the seashore and buy giant mansions right on the ocean and say, we're going to be dead from flooding in seven years. I guess they're just sacrificing themselves as an example, right? But- well, I think that they they are okay with a disposable planet. Um, I I yeah. have not changed my views on climate change, but I have changed my views on the likelihood that that global organizations like the United Nations uh-huh. that are controlled by global corporations are right. going to deliver real solutions. And I'm I'm also rethinking. Renewable energy. I, I bought an electric car. I thought I was being so slick. I bought a used car. It was a good deal. I was able to get a car for $10,000. Uh-huh. It was electric. I didn't have to pay for gas. I plugged it into my home overnight and could drive it during the day. When I first got the car, a Nissan Leaf that I think is like a, I think it's 2013. So it's pretty old now. But yeah. when I first got it, it was, a, it had a 70 mile radius. Uh-huh. Now it has a 25 mile radius under the best conditions when it's not cold right. out. And the sad thing is, is that that car is 10 years old now mm-hmm. and it's almost ready to go in the garbage. Right. And that's an extreme environmental hazard with the battery yeah. waste and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But and what they don't the mining. Yeah. What they and the mining is a whole, you know, many shows could be done on that. The yeah. whole thing they don't tell people, and this is so sophisticated, is that electric cars run on nuclear and coal. True. It's yeah, just I inefficiently mean, converted temporarily to electricity. Right. Uh, the consumer reports, I mean, one of the things that sold me on it was that when the car does have a good range and the battery hasn't pooped out on you yet, uh-huh. it, it is. It is technically more efficient at that moment. Even yeah, if you don't consider the efficiency loss in the electricity transmission, that's true. Yes, it's probably not a full life cycle analysis. It's just the efficiency of that particular power at that moment. Yeah, there's a really good book called Bright Green Lies. And it's written bright, by... Bright, bright Green Lies. Yep, it's written okay. by Lear Keith and Derek Jensen and... I'm forgetting the name of their other co-author, and it's been made into a documentary by the same name. Um, I recently interviewed the whole group, the authors oh. and documentarian, and it's it's pretty disheartening that there really there isn't a new mm-hmm. renewable energy system that is totally clean, right? They it it all involves even because of the batteries in the morning. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and and the disposable nature of it. Like when you think about yeah, so a rich person who is a billionaire spends a few million dollars to put a house on the cliffs of of you know wherever Malibu or or Miami. I guess Miami's not a cliff, but you know they're they don't you know they've got more millions and if that house falls into the ocean they'll just buy new land and buy a new house because we they're okay with 
disposing of stuff. And they want us to adopt that mindset. And I'm embarrassed to say that I did to a certain extent without realizing it. I didn't, I should have thought of it like, okay, a battery isn't going to last forever, but you can Mm -hmm. still drive a Model T Ford, you know? I mean, it, yeah, it is interesting. It's not our fault. I mean, this this was really crafted in such a sophisticated way for us to fall for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, what I found out in the search for alternatives is that the current state of solar and wind is really not that great, and electric cars are not electric in where the power comes from. Yeah. However, there is real alternative energy technology that's being suppressed by the same forces that we're talking about. And Mm -hmm. it's very, very successful. And it's capable, for example, of running cars, not on batteries, but on hydrogen. Yeah. And those people die. Yeah. They commit suicide. Stanley Uh Meyer and other ones like that, right? And that that could be used now if it was unblocked. Yeah. And there's a reason that the WEF, which wants us to eat bugs and ban cows and ban uh, berry trees now, you know, because carbon is such an immediate threat to everybody. Uh, if you look at the long-term graphs, which you might find interesting at some point, um, millions of years with the graphing uh, the relationship of carbon concentration in the atmosphere in the form of CO2 to global temperature, there's no correlation. And that's just so shocking that a lot of people can't even look at it. But once you do, it makes sense that you know, people buy mansions on the ocean and then tell everybody else to be terrified. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing with the other alternative energy sources is completely blocking them. They don't want that. So what they're doing is making believe they're environmentally conscious and banning uh, power plants so that people won't have the coal or anything else to fire up the electric cars and everybody will be totally dependent on a central source. It, right. it's, it's pretty deep. Yeah. You're talking about the solutions anyway that would still work. Yeah. I mean, there was one thing before I had an electric car. I bought a car that was a very old Mercedes station wagon Mm -hmm. that was retrofitted to run on straight vegetable oil. Oh, neat. That's a diesel car, basically, right? Yep. A, A diesel car retrofitted for straight vegetable oil. And my first husband and I would go to the the Chinese restaurant <laughs> in mm. our neighborhood and they would give us their their great big containers of used soybean oil. Right. And we would filter out any food particles, which was okay. kind of gross. I have yeah. to admit. But you just filter it through a cloth filter and then we ran our car on that. And, you know, for, we did that for a while. And at a certain point, I was like, Oh, this is messy. Uh, why don't we just, why can't we just buy vegetable oil from somebody? You know, we knew that you couldn't go to McDonald's and right. pick up their waste vegetable oil because they locked it up and then they sold it. So we knew that waste vegetable oil was going somewhere, but we were never able to find a place in Washington, DC, anywhere in this area where we could buy waste vegetable oil. Which is crazy, you know, because we could get it for free, but we couldn't buy it. And it was a DIY project, which was (laughs) pretty yucky. And when we got divorced, I I said, that's okay. Why don't you keep that car? (laughs) And I'm going to try an electric car now, which, you know, isn't a better solution in the that old Mercedes. Right. Was running on something that was free. But you want something that's usable by millions of people, right? 
Yeah, but all you would need was like a, a very small business doing what we were doing, filtering that vegetable oil. And for some reason, there there wasn't an industry built around that. I mean, it's you can do it yourself, so you don't need an industry. But um, yeah, I wonder why things like that. I haven't researched it. I don't know if there's a nefarious reason why simple things like that don't catch on. Um, yeah. But, I think I think they would if they were allowed to. But do you know about the work of Dr. Stephen Greer? No. Oh man, that that you might find that really interesting because he's done probably more investigation of real alternative energy sources than anybody else I know, fully documented and all kinds of backstory to it. And he's found that there is already developed technology of a small unit the size of a toaster that would power a house or a community with no input from what they call zero-point energy. And mm. that could be used now. And he said that the reliance on the fossil, so-called fossil fuel energy, which is really not fossil fuel, but the oil petrochemical energy has been unnecessary for a 100 years. Mm. And these technologies are being blocked. And if there was a way to unblock that, um, he's got some great information on, on YouTube that I can send you. Okay. It's really, really, you know, very relevant and could turn things around radically. There'd be no more need to fight oils or fight wars justified by looking for oil and stuff like that. Yeah. At some point, OCA got interested in uh, COVID and what was happening during the pandemic and the damage that was being done by the vaccines. And yeah. uh, Ronnie wrote a book with Joe Mercola, right? Mm-hmm. How did that transition happen? What was that about? Well, um, I don't think it was much of a transition. I think that Ronnie has always, Ronnie Cummins, who is the, the co-director of Organic Consumers Association, along with his wife, Rose Welch. Um, they founded the organization in the mm-hmm. late 1990s. Um, but they, they always took a broad view on what was relevant to right. the organization and to organic consumers. And, and so they've always been anti-war. We've had a campaign called Planting Peace for many, many years. Um, you can find information about 9-11 and the lies that took us into the so-called war on terror um, mm-hmm. on our site. It's, and always interested in threats to democracy, uh, including censorship, um, yeah, which right. became rampant during COVID. And, and so I don't think it was a huge leap. You know, it was difficult. I I, ha- I do have to say it was difficult for us to take on the vaccine safety issue mm-hmm. because that was an issue that we knew was incredibly censored, right? And that that we would be penalized. You know, on we have very strong social media on Facebook. We have a, a million um, likes or. Um, what do you call it when people join your Facebook page? Uh-huh, um, right. We have a million people in the Organic Consumers Association Facebook page. We have a million people in the Millions Against Monsanto Facebook page. You know that we've always been very strong on social media, and so it was scary to think of what might happen to the organization if we cross this line and right. start talking about vaccines the way we had about other current events that we that we thought would impact democracy. <laughs> you know, our ability to communicate and, and people's health, you right. know, it's like we, we've always been opposed to GMOs and now the government says it's okay to inject people with GMOs. 
mm-hmm. right? And and not right. only GMOs, but but things that disrupt the genetics that hijack the genetics of your own human cell. So it seemed like, you know, at a certain point we said, we just have to do it. Of course it was easy because we were right along. Well, it wasn't totally easy. There were funders that we had that weren't with us. So obviously Mm -hmm. Dr. Joseph Mercola, he's a big supporter of organic consumers association. And he and Ronnie wrote a book, the -hmm. truth about COVID-19. But um, Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps, David Bronner had also been a longtime supporter of Organic Consumers Association, and they stopped funding us because they didn't like our stance on, you know, what we saw as like just basic safety considerations related to the authorization and use of vaccines. Um, But they were going against the safe and effective mantra, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. Once you look into it, I don't think, I think people just don't want to know. But no. once people look into it, you know, if you read the laws that governed these vaccines, you already mentioned it, the emergency use authorizations. Right. And, and then, you know, if you go deeper, as many people have, like Dr. Henry Ely, um, into the clinical trials, um, I interview Dr. Henry Ely once a week on Rockfin, on Organic Consumers Association's Rockfin channel. And he told me yesterday that he was reading the Pfizer trials for the COVID vaccine. And there were two different vaccines that were used. There was the B1 and B2. And B1, they discontinued because the the rates of injuries and death in B1 were apparent right away. And he it's not it's not disclosed to the public but the assumption is is that one of the the vaccines that they trialed had more of the lipid nano particle mrna right than the other and that and perhaps that his he was also speculating on why you know why some lots of the covid vaccine mm-hmm. are 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 showing up as taking um 26% of the vaccine adverse events reported uh-huh. to the VAR system. So why, why would that be that, you know, like one lot has 26% of the injuries and deaths associated with it? Like these so in are. In other words, maybe there is something like a V1 and a V2. Exactly. Yeah. That, that the, which we know, I mean, one of the things that Dr. Ely told me early on is the most important thing to understand about What's happening when you have a vaccine come out within a year of a pandemic is that the clinical trial continues and you, you actually are joining this clinical trial. You're in it. Yeah. Yeah. You're in it and you're a trial participant. And, and yes, it's pretty clear that, that, you know, it's a new technology. Um, have you read Aaron Cariotti's book, The New Normal? Oh no, The New Abnormal. No, sounds good though. Oh, it's really good. Um, and at the end, you can skip. I mean, this is my favorite part of the book. The book's amazing. But at the very end, he, he writes, um, a little bit of fiction, a little bit of, um, science fiction, thinking about where we, where we logically go 15 or 30 years down the road from this moment of wow. the COVID experiment. And he posits that the mRNA gene modification 
has many commercial possibilities. So perhaps you could take an mRNA gene modification to increase your muscle mass or lose weight or improve your skin or, you know, what, whatever people Sounds already Sounds like an advertisement for the vaccine company. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I mean, I think that the, the point that I'm trying to get to is that I think that we all were subjected to a massive experiment because mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical companies see something, see some potential in mRNA technology, in this idea that we can modify a a human, an adult human. We don't have to create genetically modified babies. People think that's distasteful. You know, maybe next year that'll become all the rage. Right, they're still working on that. <laughs> yeah, but they think like this idea that you could take a gene therapy where we will voluntarily modify ourselves you know, first they're going to pitch it as the way to correct genetic defects that cause disease like sickle cell anemia. Right. But eventually it's going to be for, um, you know, for cosmetic reasons and just like everything else. Um, and, and so I think that's what this was about. Firstly, I, I mean, another friend of mine was talking to me recently and she said, I never want to understand why they did this. I do not want to understand this level of evil because clearly mm. they created a, a disgusting uh, Hunger Games lottery type scenario where some people were going to get injected and die right away uh-huh. and some people were going to get injected and be totally fine because they were given two different, they were right. in two different parts of the experiment without knowing it. Exactly. You know, people were unwittingly part of the control group and some people were yeah. unwittingly part of taking massive doses of lipid nanoparticle mRNA spike proteins, you know? Yeah. I totally understand why the lady didn't want to know. Yeah. Cause we you can't, know. we can't rationalize evil. I no, mean, I, I had the murder. same problem when yeah. I started investigating the power structure. Cause I thought, wow, what a beautiful organic, you know, reality could exist on this planet. It could be like heaven on earth yes. with the right consciousness. Yep. And then I started, I thought, wait a minute. I'm not the only one that can figure that out. Why is that not happening? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going on with the power structure? It can't be assumed to be a mistake right. or just random chance. Yep. And as soon as I started digging into it, I had to do something with my mind because it's like a police detective that wants to study the mentality of a serial killer to yep. catch them, right? And they go, yep. crazy. They go crazy. Yep. So I had to detach the emotional like feeding tube from what I was looking at for strategic awareness mm-hmm. from the just analytical part and separate those functions, which are by default set together. And once I did that, I was able to go all the way into it. And I had the same issue that you're talking about that I found out, wait a minute, <clears throat> I thought there was good motivation behind the vaccines. And even the doctors that recognize the COVID vaccine is essentially a weapon not a gene therapy. Those are therapies are good for you. Right. It was destructive. Mm-hmm. But they say, most of them say, but all the regular vaccines are great and they save the world. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. Science says question everything. It doesn't say to get your ego involved in defending a position because what if you need to amend it or correct it? So I looked at back to Jenner in 1796 in England. Yeah. And I found out that smallpox was the first target. It didn't eradicate that at all, or polio, 
which are the two big ones that are given to justify its use. Mm-hmm. You know, the polio was all wrapped up in the widespread use of DDT. And when that changed, right. polio started going away. Now polio is being caused almost exclusively by polio vaccines. Yep. And I started questioning all of it. It's been a scam since the beginning. And I, I don't say that as a position to grab onto and defend because I just said why you don't do that. But yep. honestly, that's what I've seen so far. And it hasn't been refuted effectively at all. And the doctors that have brought it out have paid a heavy price for it. You know, and now we're getting kicked off YouTube all the time. Yep. Having videos removed. <clears throat> so we just try to put links up there that say, well, we interviewed this really terrible person that is all misinformation. So we're saving you from that. And if you just can't stop yourself and you have <laughs> to see what a really bad person would say, here's a link to write on or bitch you to rumble or something like that. Uh, but we can't be afraid to see whatever is true or yeah. else we're going to really we don't have time. And you said OCA is really anti-war. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. I think that's wonderful and critical right now. Our same leaders that want to force the mRNA bioweapons into our bodies and hopefully into our food too, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yep. They want, they clearly want nuclear war in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And, and they're figuring that we can't do anything about it. And I'm, I'm, even though we don't have a lot of time, but I'd like to address that and the current state of uh, the plan to put the mRNA technology into food. Yeah. Well, um, these things are always connected. Um, you might remember that when the United States invaded Afghanistan, part of the, the package for a new government in Afghanistan was a seed law that would that would pave the way for Monsanto's GMOs. Right. To, to gain preeminence in Afghanistan. To which save is, the world from starvation, right? Yeah, it's just totally nuts. And so same thing in Ukraine. Um, let's see. Mitchell Cohen was writing for Covert Action magazine. And Mitchell Cohen is also the author of a book about Monsanto's herbicides and GMOs. I'm blanking on the name of that book, but, um, he wrote a great article for Covert Action magazine about the history of Monsanto in Ukraine and, mm-hmm. and how right before the Obama administration and Victoria Newland staged a coup in, uh-huh. in 2014, which was basically the beginning of the war that is happening now. Exactly. That's so um, important. Yeah. We have to if, go back. I mean, it's only if, a few years. We can, our memories can be that long. We don't have to go all the way back to the Nazis after World War II. I mean, you can if you want, but we can go back at least to, to 2014. 2014 and, is critical. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Yanukovych was the, the leader of Ukraine. At, right before the coup, uh-huh. and he he was given two aid packages. One was from the World Bank and the IMF and the the NATO countries, and the other was from from Russia. And the one that was associated with with the Western countries and was associated with the corporations. And right. Monsanto was going to to get land rights and be able to set up shop in Ukraine and. And instead, Yanukovych chose the Russian aid package that didn't have strings attached. Not conditional. And, yeah. And right. so, I mean, it's only logical. It's 
You know, it's like we think the Russians are so awful, and probably they are. And if I were Russian, I would be complaining about my own government. But, <laughs> you know, when you think about the, you know, the rational decisions that state leaders make in terms of right. how to run their country, it's not always crazy. And, and they don't mention the positive things about the Russian government currently either. For example, Putin said that one of his big objectives was to become the world leader in exporting organic food. Yep. Yeah, because he, they've been fighting over the European market. You know, Russia, right, right. Russia has always sold gas to Europe. Now the United States, we want to do it through liquefied natural gas ports. And the infrastructure isn't even there already, but we're destroying the Nord Stream pipeline to give ourselves an advantage right. so that we can become the, the gas supplier. And right. it's the same thing with grains. And you know, and it's, Russia, and it's also not we; it's our, it's the people exactly. who are running the show. Exactly. I'm so sorry for for con- consistently making that mistake. Absolutely, yeah. The U.S. government run by corporations. It's it's very logical. I mean, it's it's a good tactic that Russia said, like, okay, it looks like the Europeans like non-GMO organic grains. We'll we'll sell them non-GMO organic grains. Right. The United States, their perspective is, well, we have the biggest military in the world. And if exactly. we want to sell you GMO grains or we want to double the price of gas so that you can buy it from us, <laughs> like right, exactly. not a military, and we will start a war in Ukraine and make you miserable until you decide to to buy gas from the United States rather than Russia and buy grain from the United States instead of yeah. Russia. It's like what I found out in the 1970s of when I was in the university of what was going on in the Vietnam War and that we were being sent over there to uh, murder the people in Vietnam for the sake of high-level oil company interests and other things like that. Wow. It was, it was shocking. And it's the same theme going on now. But now... They're really serious about thinking that they can win and survive a nuclear war. And they've got the underground facilities ready to do that. Not for the general public, but for them. Yeah, Uh, for the, for the continuity of government. Yeah. And that's something that you don't want to wait decades to have an impact on. If, if there's a way that we can get in the way of that and have it turned around, we need to use all our creativity to do that. It seems to me. Yeah. Yeah, it, there couldn't be anything more important. Not at the moment. Although it is still really important about um, trying to get the vaccines into the food so they can vaccinate everybody, even the misinformation people like us who don't believe safe and effective. Yeah. Do you know what the state of that effort is at this point? Well, the you know I was reading what Dr. Mercola had on his website about it, and when I had done a Google search to see if there were mRNA vaccines in the food supply, I couldn't uh-huh. find anything. <laughs> and, you know, Google is heavily censored and it's right. not, it's not as easy as it used to be to, to get good information on the internet. But Dr. Mercola did an investigation and, um, I think the drug is called Sequivity. It's an mRNA livestock vaccine for pork. And apparently it's been in the food supply for more than five years. Yeah, I heard about that 2018 or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so about five years. And that was definitely not on my radar. I missed that completely. I I think James Corbett may have been the first person to dig that up. Okay. Um, and it's the only verified mRNA livestock vaccine that I'm aware of. But then in Missouri, when when they found about 
found out about Sequivity, they said, okay, we're going to pass a law saying that pork made with mRNA livestock vaccines is going to be labeled. And that was then Tom Renz's work, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so the cattlemen came in with their association and they said, oh, we're using it too. And I don't, you know, I haven't been able to figure out what, you know, who's selling it to them, what it's called, how it works exactly. But I think what's happening is the, you know, the, even though, even with all the money that Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, made Mm -hmm. off of the COVID vaccine, the big bucks are in livestock vaccines because there's more livestock than there is us. Right. Exactly. And if they've got a product, they want to keep making money off of that product. They don't want to have to change it a whole lot. So they're going to take the same technology and, and they're going to take it right into the food supply. And the scary part about it is, is that this is a gene modifying technology. It produces proteins that, you know, it continues the replication of proteins. The spike protein, there's no indication that the spike protein production stops. Once you've been given the messenger RNA, it it turns that on in the body. It could be transmitted between generations even. That's very likely. That's very likely. And, And there is evidence that it does move into the food supply. I believe it was a Chinese study that showed that, that mRNA could be found in, well, it can be found in breast milk. We've heard that, mm-hmm, right, <laughs> but it can right. be found in, in the milk of animals. And this was, you know, this is, there were studies that showed that about GMOs as well, which, you know, the GMO technology is the traditional GMO technology, having a genetically modified plant, having uh-huh. an will eat a genetically modified plant and then finding genetically modified proteins in the milk. Right. That's, that seems like that's more challenging than this mRNA technology. Seems like that would be much easier to get directly into the food supply. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's that, but there's also um, one of the big issues that we had with Tom Vilsack, who was the USDA secretary for Obama is now USDA secretary again for Biden Um, When he was governor of Iowa, he was supporting a company called Protogene. And Protogene was putting livestock vaccines into corn and growing Mm -hmm. it in the open air, you know, in field, you know, right next to human corn. And it ended up... Pollen just blows all over the place. Oh, yeah. And it, it just ended up getting harvested and dumped into a grain elevator where it was intended for the human food supply, not supposedly accidentally, but I mean, maybe that was an experiment too. I have a totally different perspective since COVID on, on the things that I knew about before COVID because before COVID, I was like, must be an accident. Yeah, Uh, exactly. Must be greed. People must not know any better, you know, but, but they know they're more evil than greed. And right, there probably right. aren't that many accidents. At the top, but, it's not about money. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, else. If you have biz, if you have hundreds of billions of dollars, what is money to you? Right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. No, so it's connected with that, depopulation. Yes. I I think that that you know, okay, I wanted to mention this earlier in terms of um the idea of like whether vaccines before COVID were good. 
and vaccines after COVID are bad. You Um, have to do the research and find out. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I want to tell you about a movie that changed my mind about this. It's called Cold Case Hammerskold. I haven't heard of that either. Hammerskold is Dag Hammerskold. He was the UN Secretary General in the 1960s, right? I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he was the UN Secretary General at a time when the majority black countries, we were, were gaining independence from white colonialism in Southern Mm -hmm. Africa. So yeah, this was happening in Rhodesia, in, um, in the Belgian Congo, you know, they, there were, there were wars for independence and, and South Africa, which was the last to give up, you know, this white rule mm-hmm. against a majority black population. Um, they, they were really playing dirty. And, um, if you, if you've heard my interviews with Dr. Merrill Nass, You've heard us talking about what happened with anthrax in Rhodesia, where it is very clear that anthrax was used as a bioweapon against the majority black population. You know, just civilians, farmers, mm-hmm. rural right. people who weren't right. combatants, but right. but they were attacked with anthrax as a as a weapon. And it's likely that that came from South Africa, and it's likely that the United States was working with South Africa on its biological weapons program. Right. So there's this, this movie I was telling you about, about the murder of Dag Hammarskjöld. He, he officially died in a plane crash, mm-hmm. but there was, there were marks left by the CIA at the scene of the crime. When the CIA does a murder, they often leave a spade, a, a playing card. Mm-hmm. A black, mm-hmm. a black like the spade. Joker in the Batman movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so that was found. On in Dog Hammerskjold's collar. So it looks like what happened was the plane was downed and then CIA agents went to the scene to make sure that he was dead and, mm-hmm. and left their calling card there. Very interesting story. But what the documentary filmmakers who tracked this learned in addition, they started interviewing people who were part of the South African government's um, illegal militias that were being used to to undermine or engage in guerrilla warfare with the majority black independence fighters and the the these were they called themselves i think it was called Celis scouts and it was secret militias doing secret things and when the documentary makers interviewed them about the dog Hammerskjold murder They wanted to unburden themselves about other things. And Mm. they told the filmmakers this horrible story about how the, the South African militias used doctors and set up clinics, so-called clinics in black neighborhoods to inject people with who knows what, Mm -hmm. but in retrospect, the assumption is that it was a biological weapon Mm -hmm. that created AIDS or either created or spread yeah in hiv so destroy the immune system anyway yeah yeah and um yeah so that after i you know it's a bunch of things but that you know i was researching biological weapons i was reading len horowitz's book 
mm-hmm. AIDS and emerging Ebola, viruses. Emerging viruses, AIDS and Ebola. Yeah. And and I realized that COVID probably wasn't the first lab made virus to cause a pandemic. And, no, and, yeah. and it, it gets into some really interesting identification issues too, because fortunately they developed a technique. Well, they didn't. They had a, a guy named Kerry Mullis develop a technique yes. that was not a test. And he specifically said, just like the enumerated powers in the Constitution forbid the government from doing 99% of what it's doing now. Mm-hmm. Kerry Mullis said that the PCR procedure could never be a diagnostic test for anything. Mm-hmm. And they're using it not only to show that everybody has COVID when they've never isolated that virus or maybe any others, but they're also using it to prove that all your chickens have to be killed. Right. Because they're all sick and it's proven with the PCR procedure. Right. Which, which doesn't show anything. Very dangerous new technique that they're using right now. Sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that goes. No, right. no, that's a, you've you've raised lots of topics that I'd like to comment on, but I'll I'll hook on to the bird flu. That yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know, if you go to EPA and CDC websites, you see that that it's it's not transmissible to human right. beings, right? And and the food from a a bird flu positive bird mm-hmm. isn't even. There's nothing wrong with that food. You can eat it. Right. They say that they're like, you can't get bird flu from eating an infected chicken. And yet we have culled hundreds of thousands of birds and it's been going on for. Yeah. Except we, ha- we haven't done that though. Me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless you were part of the team. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. The FDA, CDC. New pandemics USDA. are in the works right now. Yeah. You know, and, and but they have floated the idea that that bird flu is transmitted or transmissible right. to human beings. They there was a prisoner who was as a prisoner doing farm labor on a factory farm. Uh-huh. And they claimed that he had tested positive for bird flu. They also re- they also said in the same pr- press release well, he was standing in a chicken house and. Oh, well, that was, does it then. Yeah. So he was breathing <laughs> all of this. You know, if you're in a chick, you know, even if you're across the street from a chicken right. house with your windows rolled up, driving by in your car, you can smell it and you can see it. I mean, oh, I know. feces I in the air. And so they said, well, it's very likely that it was just aerosolized feces in his navel cavity, nasal cavities that caused this yeah i mean obviously well, you're you're not, not supposed to breathe pure, your nose. you're you're not supposed to breathe pure methane either <laughs> right yeah oh yeah that's horrible it's, it's horrible to think that he was a prisoner being forced to work in a factory farm it's oh just, yeah the whole story is awful but it's so clear that they swabbed his nose and there was fecal material from the chicken house in his nose obviously anybody sure was, i mean it, you couldn't you couldn't no, be there it, without getting fecal it's material. Like in the dust, yeah. Yeah. So, so they could they could make any. So, by what you were saying about these PCR tests, it's even worse than that, I think, because anybody who worked in a chicken house uh-huh. could could have bird flu fecal material in right. their nose and yeah. easily test positive. Even and if, if they can test animals with PCR, 
All they do is declare what they're testing for and say it's positive and that's it. They can kill yep. all your animals. Yep. And right. backyard ch- chicks as well or yeah, backyard yeah. poultry as well. And yeah, this is, this is a very, very serious situation. And of course, you know, the other thing is that Tamiflu mm-hmm. <laughs> is the, is the remedy, right? So mm-hmm. that's owned by Roche. And, uh, I can't remember what company got the, they the last time I had checked about this, they were waiting for FDA approval for over the counter Tamiflu. And so, yeah, so this at any moment there, the televisions could turn on mass hysteria about uh-huh. bird flu and cause all of exactly. their people to run out and go to the drugstore and buy Tamiflu and poison themselves. You know, it's yeah. just, yeah, exactly. It's, Brings up the the issue of the entire drug nature of allopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. They do some great emergency medicine and trauma care work. Surgery, but as far yeah. as the approach to disease and degeneration and so-called aging and transmissible diseases, they've got a system that was developed originally by the Rockefeller and Carnegie groups working together in 1910. And the basic idea is that if you can control the remedies, like you say with Tamiflu, and the remedy creates worse conditions, and yeah. it co- it could cover up or change some of the current system symptoms, then you've got it controlled. It's uh, it's pretty serious, and I think one of the big issues is, like you said, the people being afraid to find out because everybody wants to feel good, including us and yeah. the bad guys and the good guys that are all trying to feel good and finding out about things that are very unpleasant. You know, that we're living in a dystopia worse than most science fiction yeah. movies. That's not something that attracts people to get into it. No. And, and yet there has to be a solution so that, you know, we're not all poisoned or before that blown up in a nuclear war. Right. And, I, I'm totally interested in solutions, and that's why I think the work that you guys are doing is so fantastic. The other, the other thing about getting mRNA into the food um, is it's not just about meat, you know, because I'm I'm vegetarian at the moment too, not because of the label, but just because I don't want to be involved in the killing of animals if I can help it. I'd rather have to kill plants, and but I found out that organic raw milk is super great, you know, for dealing with a lot of health situations and the cholesterol in it is very valuable as a nutrient. Yeah. Aside from what even though the UN says that's terrible. But um there's a Japanese experiment showing that they could get the mRNA technology into milk. And there's also great concern about it being put into vegetables and fruit. So Yeah, well I was going to tell you the protogene story about Tom Vilsack in Iowa. Right. Growing a pig vaccine or actually, yeah, I think it was a vaccine for porcine diarrhea virus. They were growing that that vaccine in the corn. Right. Right. And so the this idea that they can just, you know, just like they have corn that produces an insecticide, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They can just grow pharmaceuticals in plants and then it can be the same plants that we're eating. And then those plants can contaminate the food supply or get accidentally harvested and put into right. the the supply chain. I mean, it's and what's the attitude of National Organic Program or Standards Board on on those issues? I don't think that they've taken that up. Um, they've taken up nanotechnology, 
And it's in the law. The law has a definition of what is excluded methods. So genetic engineering is an excluded method. Okay. And, but, but what they call traditional breeding, how, the way they've interpreted it, they say that irradiation, like the way Norman Borlaug irradiated wheat to, to mm-hmm. grow shorter so it could be easily mechanically harvested. Right. That's done through irradiation, which can be through ultraviolet light or through a chemical irradiation. And then you see what mutations happen and then you take the mutations that you like. Um, that's just the same as genetic engineering, but it's not the, the splicing and dicing of, of doesn't use a gene gun, right? Yeah. Right. So it's just a different way of doing the same thing. But there have been a lot of people at the National Organic Program that say that irradiation is different from genetic engineering. And then I guess, you know, people say that mRNA is different from genetic engineering. You know, these things are different. They're all the same. (laughs) How do they find the people who get to vote on this this stuff on the board? Uh, They get appointed by the president, actually. Really? Yeah. They, oh. Well, by the USDA secretary, it's as as a member of the cabinet of the or president. whoever they point, whoever they give that job to. Yeah, I mean it gets I delegated. Mean, it's in their but, name. Yeah. Yeah, but it's a federal appointment. Okay, so they could anybody could be on there basically. Uh yeah, and it's usually a mix. Um, it's usually like some really cool people. One of my favorite farmers locally, Nick Marivelle of Nick's Organic Farm. He was on the board for a long time. Uh-huh. Um, oh, Francis Tickey from Iowa, another famous organic farmer, Radiance Dairy. He was on the board. So they always have some like really awesome people. Oh yeah. Um, Jay Feldman with Beyond Pesticides. He was on the board. So they always have at least like one really amazing, awesome organic farmer or scientist or, or lawyer who really understands organic standards and then they have a bunch of industry people uh, certifiers they you know sometimes there's you know they'll say somebody's a farmer but they really Mm. just work for a gigantic corporation like driscoll okay okay right so there have have you talked to the awesome good members and asked them what the experience is like Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. And the people who do a good job, it's, it's a ton of work. Um, yeah. Do they feel like they can get the good things passed if they do that? I think what happens is there is sort of, you do start to identify, or the people who do this do start to identify with the power structure that they are part of. Huh. So I won't name any names, but but one of the people that I knew on the committee would always say like, I don't think I'm going to stick my my neck out on this one. I'm going to save it for, you know, the most important thing. In other words, it's not just tell the truth at any cost. Yeah, it's kind of like I've I've only got a little bit of political capital to spend and I'm going to choose just one good cause but I'm not going to take on everything. So I'm go- I'm going to vote the right way when I think it's going to matter. Wow. And otherwise, I'll be conservative so I don't stand out and so the people trust me. You know, So it's, it's that mentality instead of, no, nobody should have to eat any of this stuff. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, it, it's somewhat political, I think. People, yeah, because right. people, you know, they don't want to seem like freaks. They want people to listen to them when they speak and not discount their opinion. Right. Um, it's, it's not an irrational thing, but, you know, it's, 
I always thought like, oh, I should, you know, put my hat, my name in the hat in the ring or whatever, try to get nominated. But Ronnie always said like, don't waste your time. (laughs) And, and I, you know, I was obsessed with the work that I did on organic standards. I ended up protesting one year in Texas and getting arrested. And, you know, I just threw my heart and soul into it. And I, I took the activism on organic standards to the absolute limit. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that, that it wasn't going to make a whole lot of difference, you know, and kind of shifted the, the focus to decentralized, what people could do in individual communities and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think it's still important for us to vote for us to weigh in with comments, Mm -hmm. you know, to develop relationships with all of our elected officials and all decision makers in government. But I, I do think that we will have, you know, if you have to choose, what level to focus at, I think we should focus on gaining more rights for localities. Right. There's, there's another good group in addition to the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. There's a group that does World Localization Day. <laughs> so you can look mm. that up. There's a website, World Localization Day. It's pretty cool. Um, that sounds great. Yeah. So, so we can, we can do this as a global campaign or even a national campaign, but it's still about getting more rights for localities. Yeah, exactly. So the people that were really focused on exposing like what was in the book by Ronnie and Joe, um, what is their attitude toward lockdowns and forced vaccines that may be in the works planning right now with the media ready to back up the necessity of it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we have a lot of things to to watch out for, um, you know, one of the things about what happened with COVID is that it was, it was all on paper. People got paper vaccine cards. Right. I mean, some people got digital right. things, but, but most of the record keeping wasn't really, you know, it wasn't high tech. Yeah. <laughs> they tried, yeah. they tried to do some, some things that were like, you know, digital vaccine passports, but that system was not yet in place. And I think that what's happening now is obviously, you know, we have our phones. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we think these things are, are pretty essential and so convenient. And like in, in Maryland right now, I think that they've made it a law. I'm not exactly sure when it goes into effect that we can have a digital driver's license. And probably most people will say, Oh, that's, that's convenient. I'll just keep my driver's license on my exactly. phone along with my credit card and. It, it'll just mean that I don't have to carry a lot of things or I won't lose stuff. Um, but, but what this is, mo- and you know, those things in themselves aren't especially nefarious. Um, but what this is all moving towards is, is this, you know, a ban on the use of cash mm-hmm, right now? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, some, you can go to a lot of places that don't accept cash, right? There's nothing you can do about it. Your money's no good there. And, and it's so, the approaching CBDC system, right? Exactly, the central bank digital currencies. And and once these things are all locked in place, once the health records are digitized, your ID is digitized, your bank is digitized, right. your identity is digitized, your access to everything is digitized, then then there will be, you know, obviously centralized control that will be very difficult to evade. And then I think the thing that I, I don't, I have not done a lot of my own research on it yet, but I think the 5G technology. Right. 
the, the cell phone radiation is something that we need to be extremely concerned about. There was just some kind of announcement through Biden or someone connected to him of the announcement of the beginning of 6G. Of course. Yeah, they're just going to ratchet it up. It's, I guess it's a big experiment. They'll, they'll right. probably give some communities ultra high levels of cell phone radiation and see what happens. Yeah, they, you and, know, it, and if you really care about the environment and the climate, then you won't have your own car at all. You'll be in a driverless car controlled by five or six G with a list of where you can go and when it's being kind of tested out in China to. Oh, a yeah. Right. Yeah. As a model. And some of the big controllers have said what a wonderful example it is for the world. You yeah. Know, that we can be responsible and give up all freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that happened in China in recent months were the collapse of local banks. Uh-huh. And and you saw huge protests of of people rioting outside. I remember the, the banks because they couldn't get their money. I mean, this is. Yeah, I think that we do have to look at China as the worst case right now and, yeah, be prepared for, for these things happening in other places in the world. So it, it seems like, you know, the people planning this consolidation and control <clears throat> are very well organized. And that's one advantage that they have. And most of us who still believe in individual freedom, which was like yeah. the cornerstone of the founding of the, theory of america in the beginning even if it's never been fully lived up to it's really important and uh just like the enumerated powers in the constitution <clears throat> which have been dumped a long time ago yep. done through illegal ag- agencies mm-hmm. in the declaration of independence it talks about your inalienable god-given rights that government can't pass any laws to get rid of right mm-hmm. and so right now the question is okay if some of us are aware and willing to look at what's happening and not diverting our gaze because it's dystopian. Mm-hmm. What's the best contribution that we could make to having an opposite future happen? And if you yeah, had to put think, it all together, what would you say at this point? Yeah, I really do think that, I mean, it's not just because I work for the Organic Consumers Association and my issue is mm-hmm. food. I really do think that objectively, taking control of your health through relationships with local food producers in your area mm-hmm. is, is so key. And I think it's the key to the economic situation. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the key to our health. It's our key to, you know, sticking it to the corporations, boycotting the corporations, right. you know, getting rid of the middlemen and yeah. giving the entire value of the, you know, the entire food dollar directly to the to the farmer um, and, and building community, like having relationships. Oh, my other favorite organization is Weston A. Price. Yeah, they're great. I've talked to them a lot. Yeah. So, and that's, if people want to get in a community of people who have made it their mission to secure their local food economy and their health through uh-huh. local food, that is your local Weston A. Price chapter. And you can find them at realmilk.com. Yeah, which also, if you ever want to get milk that's not destroyed by pasteurization, they have a guide of what farms produce it. Yeah, and and all of the the groups are local buying clubs. Yeah, yeah. So so it's great because you get into community. Like I did it, and at first it was just like I want raw milk, 
how do I get raw milk? I can't buy it at the store. I have to join this club. They have to admit me as a member. Then I have to meet people. And I went through all those, what I considered hoops at the time. And then I realized like, hey, that's super cool that like I'm joining a group of like-minded people and they are are doing this for the farmers. I mean, in in the D.C. area, Pennsylvania's Amish farmers are our source of raw milk. And it's so cool that that the Amish can continue to live the way they live. And there are people from the cities who are happy to drive vans up to the farm, pick up the milk and coolers, and then distribute it to the neighborhoods in in town. It's just, it's so great. And And that's become somewhat of a contest too, because... Raw milk is such a domestic terrorist sign, you know, that you're trying to destroy the country, that taking it across state lines is technically illegal, right? Especially if you're distributing. Yes. Well, um, Liz Reitzig, who is an activist, uh, she created the, the raw milk on the hill. I think that's the name of her group. Okay. Um, she did a lawsuit and she said she basically turned herself in to the FDA. She said, I am, I am on the regular getting milk, transporting it across state lines. Are you going to, to do anything about it? And, and essentially, as long as this lawsuit is in a stalemate as it is, then she has a victory because if the FDA won't prosecute her when she is waving in their face, you know, that Uh she's flaunting their laws, then they, they essentially can't prosecute anybody. Is is that a, is that a law or a regulation? It's a lawsuit. Oh, no, but I mean, the, the the thing that makes it currently illegal, is that a law or regulation from FDA? I believe it is a regulation. I do not think it is an act of Congress, but I haven't looked that up recently. Because there is some, I mean, I'm not putting it past Congress to make it illegal to drink raw milk. Of course, they could do that. But yeah. the agencies aren't really allowed to pass laws calling them regulations, right? Yes, yes. I mean, they, the courts give them wide latitude. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, yeah. There, there is a check that's possible. The courts can invalidate. Yeah, the court can't really invalidate a federal law passed by Congress unless it violates the Constitution. But then the courts do have the ability to interpret agency actions to see if they overstep the authority that Congress has granted the agency. So right. technically, there's there's that ability, but it's extremely rare that Congress yeah. or that the courts will will override an agency action. Although it happens, you know, we're, we were talking about dicamba earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The courts keep telling the EPA that the EPA is violating the law. So it does happen. Wow. I hope you'll come back again because it's really great to get to talk to you on so many connected issues. But if you had to say just briefly what your current focus is and what you want people to be aware of and how they can follow that, what are you doing? What are your days wrapped up with now? Um, It's it's a rotating list of issues um, that we keep going back to. We're always keeping track of pesticides, GMOs. Mm -hmm factory farms, uh, the latest in regenerative agriculture, the benefits of regenerative agriculture. Yeah. We have a farm in Minnesota. We have a farm in Mexico. Uh, so we're doing on-the-ground work, and we're part of Regeneration International, which is a, a, a worldwide coalition of regenerative organic practitioners and advocates. So so that's that's our world. And we're trying to keep up with current events. Um mm-hmm. 
I've been attending hearings on Capitol Hill related to COVID origins. Mm. With, you know, because we do think that this is genetic engineering gone wrong, genetic engineering used to create biological weapons. And mm. um, we've been working with a group called COVID Origins, which um, I wasn't able to go last week, but they crashed the committee hearing wearing uh, T-shirts that said jail Fauci. And they got oh, that's great. on national news all over the place. And as a side note, all the people connected to what he was doing, too. Oh, yes. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the weaponization of NIH, of, yeah. of federal research and the corporatization. It's, it's just horrible. The, the De- Department of Defense and the corporations took over the National Institutes of Allergies. Yeah, which is the definition of fascism is the cooperation is. between the government and corporations. That's right. Right. It, against the people. And right yep. now there's, there was an announcement. <clears throat> I don't remember exactly when. But it's commonly known that the illegal biological weapons development is going on full force in countries all over the world with U.S. funding. And nobody seems to be able to do anything to change that. You know, that was a big focus in Ukraine. Yep. And you, you know, at some point we can talk more about Ukraine, but um, hopefully we won't have to if that gets resolved. But yeah. it's, there's a very close analogy between what's going on in Ukraine and what John Kennedy had to deal with in this Soviet missile crisis in 1962. Yes. Not what we're being told. We have an issue with media in this country. Yeah, corporate control. Making sure that we don't understand what's happening. Yep. Eventually, you know, motivating us to turn each other in and censor everybody who's not going along with the narrative. Mm-hmm. It used to be about freedom. It'd be good to bring that back. Yeah. So, yeah. I love what people used to say. I disagree with you, but I would fight for your right to say what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the best kind of debate, in my opinion, is when you realize you're both on the same team and all you want to do is find out what's true. Mm-hmm. Not, not say your point of view wins, no matter what it is. And then if it's true, it's going to prove itself true. And if it's not, you're going to get the pleasure of, in, you know, correcting it. Mm-hmm. Learning something, yeah. Yeah, whole different feeling. Yep. So, best websites for people to follow you? Organicconsumers.org. Okay. And then uh, the larger coalition is called regenerationinternational.org. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. And if you're in Mexico, visit Via Organica. Via, V-I-A Organica? Mm-hmm. Well, where in Mexico is that? San Miguel de Allende. Roughly how far south? Uh, I think it's equidistant from Mexico City and the border. It's in the central highlands of, of Mexico. The The airplane, the airport is Guanajuato León, which is about an hour and a half or so from San Miguel. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Very encouraging what they're doing. Yeah, really great stuff. Yeah, so thank you. You're greatly appreciated. Oh, wonderful. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, I learned so much. I can't wait to talk with you again. Sounds neat. Okay, you guys, there goes Alexis Baden-Meyer from Organic Consumers Association, doing great work and has been for a long time, very courageous. And um, organicconsumers.org is the website to go there and keep up with what they're doing and support their work. Really what, you know, what it's about is being able to live in harmony with nature and not have your food supply corrupted 
And Alexis was saying, you know, how for a long time, the best way she knew how to do was to get the National uh, Organic Program, the Standards Board, to live up to their job and to their responsibility and act uh, ethically. And then realized finally that we can't just count on that. And I was aware of that from when they first started making organic an official designation of government that I knew the kind of things that government does and it wouldn't be for our benefit. It would be to dilute specifically with the purpose of diluting the standards and eventually making the organic people uh, think they were eating clean when they're being fed poison. And that's getting more so all, all the while now. Um, so I, I agree with Alexis that we have to decentralize the system as much as possible make communities self-sufficient, and that takes some involvement at the local level. And not everyone has time for that, but if you can, that means involvement with your city council or county board of supervisors or, uh, you know, other agencies like school boards and things like that, and to try to take control of the uh, locality where you live as much as possible. And we've heard, we've had Sheriff Mack on the phone numerous times and talking about how the county sheriff can do can stand against the unlawful activities of agencies whether state or federal and that's true but right now that's really in challenge uh, under challenge because of the corruption of the justice department at all these different levels from local up to federal and beyond international and you've got countries giving away their citizens rights by joining organizations like WHO, obeying organizations like the UN and the WEF, which say they make believe they're just uh, voluntary organizations. And it's voluntary to join, which unfortunately most of our countries have. But once you join, it's not voluntary to follow the uh, orders of the policies that these organizations come up with. That's why Rima Labo uh, Dr. Labo is doing such important work trying to expose the criminal activity of the WHO and to get your country out of it wherever you are in the world. Um, so you have to work on multiple levels at once, at the local level to the degree that you can within family and friends and associates and being an example of what you believe is good and at the same time doing what we can uh, to try to overcome the election fraud and the fake people getting in and to office at the uh, federal level and state level and so many things that happened in the recent elections. Like in Arizona, where I am, we had four great candidates for office, and I think they all won in a landslide, and they were all de- declared as having lost. This is a big issue that has to be fixed somehow. And the attitude of organic consumers is... Harmony, cooperation, local activity, and doing what we can at the national level, which they're still monitoring the Organic Standards Board and that National Organic Program, but to work on both levels at once. And especially, I would add, to work on ourselves, you know, so that we're not just doing all this talk and not living up to it. So the main person that we have to reform is ourselves, not just because you don't want to be involved on the outside, but because what you do in yourself puts um, constructive, creative, healing power behind what you say 
And if you just say it and don't do it, which is really easy for all of us to fall into, then we don't have the same effect. I also want to say one thing before we sign off here on the issue uh, that uh, Alexis brought up. She talked about vegetarianism and meat eating and Weston Price Association and uh, all part of regenerative agriculture. And I'm just saying that, you know, you have, you're ultimately responsible for your own health and lifestyle. No expert can do that. Um, really important. It takes work and it takes investigation. It takes study. It takes, uh, paying attention and observing correlation between lifestyle changes that you make and how it makes you feel and how it affects the function of your body. Uh, you're the ultimate doctor in every case there, no matter what credentials they hand out to people that are going to give you toxic chemicals and call it medicine you're the one responsible no matter what sanity or insanity is going on among the experts of the time and i mentioned to alexis when she brought that up you know that i'm a vegetarian myself not because of the label but because at a certain point in my own discovery and consciousness process i realized that i looked at animals and i said do I want to kill my pet dog? Do I want to kill my my pet cat or somebody else's animal? Or, and then I met cows and goats and sheep and other animals face to face, interacted with them and realized these are conscious beings. They're very sentient. They have experience of uh, pleasure and pain and interest and boredom and anger and a lot of the same things that we do. And if I can take care of my body without killing them and causing them distress i want to do it so what i did find out you know the idea of of science the approach of science is question everything so right now the un and the wef and other agencies are saying it's really terrible uh, the impact that animals have on the environment and i found that that's completely not true and it doesn't even make common sense you know that Cows have to be banned now, and this is part of the craziness of mis- misunderstanding the environmental uh, concerns to take care of the life support system of the planet. That makes total sense, but how it's being done, it's being misapplied so that we're supposed to lose all common sense and just uh, support whatever they say and give up our rights so that we're not killed by environmental issues. And the ones that they're emphasizing with the leaders of the climate change movement buying mansions on the coast, in in my observation, it's not just because they're ready to throw away their mansion and move. It's because they don't believe what they're saying. Very clear. You know, I could name uh, major figures that are doing that, that are still making us think, if you have your own car, if you use your own energy, anything like that, it's evil. So I don't want this kind of criminal organization telling me whether I should be a vegetarian or a meat eater. That's something for you to find inside yourself. But for, for people that are going to eat meat, be carnivores. Then what Alexis brought up of having the, the killing of the animals done locally, right on the farm where you're interacting with the farmer, uh, be involved in your own food production. And I think that's the way to do it for people like, where I am in my uh, attitude toward that right now. You don't want to kill the animals. And in fact, 
I found that, uh, this is a long subject. I won't spend too much time on it, but, um, raw milk was really, really a beneficial health food. There was a, it, it's not what the vegans say. You know, the studies that they point to are like the China study where they don't differentiate between raw and pasteurized milk and pasteurized milk. A lot of people have found in really uh, good work that they've done is is extremely destructive to health. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but raw milk, organic raw milk, where the animals are well-treated is uh, spectacular and, in fact, doesn't do all the harm that the really well-meaning vegan leaders say that it does. In my experience, what I've observed and in my own body, um, the effect on function, energy level, uh, doesn't create colds and flu and stuff like that. I haven't had those for decades. Um, I don't see any correlation there at all in real life. And there was a very interesting sanitarium uh, health retreat run in Los Angeles in about 1880. I think it started somewhere around there. It was run by a guy named Charles Sanford Porter, medical doctor. And he wanted to have people cured by fasting because he knew for thousands of years, that's been used as a universal detox. It's built into the body, and it works great. You know, many of us have done lots of it. But he had the problem that people would lose strength and ability to function. They'd get emaciated, and he'd get very weak when they were going through a long water fast. And he came up with an idea that the vegans would all say is pretty crazy. And he said, what if we get organic raw milk? and put them just on that, put them to bed for a month, and uh, take care of them and see what happens. Use uh, colon hydrotherapy when necessary, like any fast. But um, anyway, he did this for hundreds or thousands of people in his Los Angeles-based sanitarium and basically cured everything. Interestingly enough, he couldn't find uh, cancer cases to test on it in 1880, 1890. But he wrote a book in about 1902 or 1905, I forget the exact year. And it was about using raw milk for uh, chronic disease. And I recommend taking a look at it if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Because what I found is that the cholesterol and the saturated fat, from what I can tell, and I'm subject to error. I'm not an absolute authority on any of this stuff. You have to stay open to being corrected. But from what I can tell, those are essential nutrients, very valuable. It is possible to make them in your body. Your liver can produce cholesterol, things like that. But there seems to be an advantage to taking it in in a live food, raw, organic form. And <clears throat> we're not really made to do that with... Uh, bodies of animals as, as meat, but we are easily able to take it in as milk. And the site that Alexis mentioned, realmilk.com, gives locations of the uh, individual farms in every state that produce that. And I'm sure it's possible to find them maybe easier in other countries too. And if you do, I recommend don't just look for a certification of organic because what really matters is whether it really is, not whether it's certified. And same with vegetable producers locally and anything like that is talk to the farmer. Find out in the case of the crop 
uh, crops like vegetables and fruits, what they put in the soil, what, if anything, they spray on the fruit. Um, and the same with raising animals. What do they feed the cows? The only uh, drawback that I've found so far to the raw milk is not health-related at all. It's the fact that even though they call it, <clears throat> excuse me, they call it compassionate uh, raising of the dairy animals, they're just about all killed by all the all the farms, including the, uh, what do they, they're not sustainable, they, humane, I guess they call it, the ones that raise the animals humanely. They kill almost all of them. They don't need very many bulls. And since there's about 50% of the baby cows are male, they kill most of those for food, or almost all of them. And then when the females get old and don't produce as much milk, to be economically profitable, they kill them too. And that's a big drawback if you're talking about not wanting to kill and make animals suffer. So a long time ago, and I'm trying to stop here because I'm over time, but <clears throat> a long time ago, thousands of years ago, <clears throat> when certain figures like Krishna were walking around, and even in the time of Jesus, they were using raw milk. And many of the people who appreciated uh, wanted to do it without killing animals, had found a way to do it where their, the cows could go longer between having to be bred and still produce enough milk to make it worthwhile and a way to time the breeding so that they produced almost all females and very few bulls, so just the ones that they needed for breeding. But that knowledge has been lost. It's one of the main laws. Not, well, I don't know if it's a main one, but it's one of the interesting lost arts that is not even remembered. <clears throat> I talk to Buddhist temples and Hindu temples all over the world because they, many of them are vegetarian and don't want to harm animals, and they don't remember anything about how the milk was produced. So anybody that has an idea on that, let me know. <clears throat> Richard at lostartsradio.com. I'm still looking because if you are not wanting to kill the animals and you're using raw milk, thinking that that takes care of it. It only does, really, if you can get back this lost knowledge of how to raise dairy animals and not have to kill them, which is not known right now. <clears throat> so I'm really interested in finding that again. Stay in touch if you've got an idea. Otherwise, support organic consumers because they're doing great work and they're just trying to protect our right to eat what we want in a natural form without it being corrupted, especially unknowingly corrupted. And there's big issues to look into right now with the nanotech and food, the mRNA technology. Um, we're putting out some videos. I'm going to do one soon about the self-assembling nanotechnology that's appearing uh, in the blood of both vaccinated and unvaccinated people, which brings us into areas of geoengineering and all, many other related topics. We'll be talking about all of them. And some of that is going to be on the Substack <clears throat> that we just started with a new setup by Doug. And uh, if you want to get on the mailing list for that, go to newsletter.lostartsradio.com, sign up, and you'll get the private messages that are going out. I've only just started that, done maybe four or five of them. And they'll go to you by email if you want. So that's newsletter at lostartsradio.com and lostartsradio.com in general will keep you up to date with what we're doing. Uh, Planetary Healing Club 
is about the specific effort to get, bring back uh, normal consciousness, which is also a lost art to everyday life use and how to do that in a supportive group environment. Uh, that's one of the main focuses, planetaryhealingclub.com and overall remember organicconsumers.org and the work of Alexis Badenmeyer and our friend Ronnie Cummins. If there's still a chance to bring the world back to complete normal health, and those guys are doing a lot of work, as as many of us are. And value yourself, take care of yourself. If you want to work for a better world, the place to start is look, you know, bring your attention back for a minute off of everybody else around you and all these situations that are developing and look at yourself, what you could do better and become an example of whatever it is you believe is real. Okay, so take care of yourself. Don't undervalue yourself. Don't believe you're unimportant. Don't believe you're helpless. It's the opposite of the truth. So that's why we're taking the time to talk. And uh, look forward to seeing you again shortly. Meet you here next week.
Yeah. 